Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Well, hey, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's really good to have you on. And I kind of feel like it's quite overdue because, you know, you've been speaking for quite a while and you've been a part of the like clicker expo scene. And, you know, I actually saw you speak at uh, the IAABC conference in Manchester. So, um, you know, I've, I've seen your uh, stuff and, you know, the LLA course is so well reviewed. So it's really awesome to finally have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to talk with you. And talking behavior is like having dessert. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're well known for blowing people's minds, so I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that we can do that a bit today as well. And and I really wanted to. There's kind of a few topics I really wanted to talk about because I think. But where I would like to start is agency because I think that that is really confusing for a lot of people. And I think that there is some kind of misinterpretation of the information that goes on between the science and it's kind of as it makes its path to dog training. So I'm hoping that you can help us clear that up a little bit because what I see thrown around a lot is this idea of agency then seems to become kind of very fixed together with the term choice and then we end up with this confusion about what is what (laughs) so i was hoping that maybe we can start out just by defining those terms yeah you're really hitting on things that have been uh flowing across my desk just in the last couple of days Uh, i looked up the word agency just the other day uh, because uh, for many of us it's an unusual a synonym for control. And uh, the dictionary did verify that definition. I have heard of it in reference to religious um, choice in that a person who follows a particular religion may uh, be in a religion that advocates for individual agency. So even though there are fixed standards, there's this clause that allows for personal control Um, even when people are not behaving according to those standards. So that's where I heard it first. Um, And so I think of it, and the dictionary bears this out, that one use of the term is personal or individual control. And then as a behavior analyst, of course, I ask control over what? And the answer in terms of behavior is control over outcomes. Um, The thing that behavior is evolved to do is allow us to interface with the environment in a way that changes the environment for our benefit to either uh, get reinforcers or to escape aversive stimuli. And without that evolved tool, uh, how would we survive the demands of the environments we're living in? Because they're changing all the time. So. Okay. Control becomes a very basic, very fundamental, I've even called it, as have some other authors and researchers, a primary reinforcer without, um, you know, it is a need that we are born with to control outcomes and behavior is the mechanism by which we do that. 
That's really interesting, Susan, because that then implies that behavior inherently, without us kind of adding anything in, is agency, right? Behavior is the mechanism by which we um, have or express agency. So we express control over the environment through our behavior. And then in changing the environment, and there's a beautiful Skinner quote that speaks to this, in changing the environment with our behavior, the environment then feeds back those changes in a way that influences what we do next. And so it's this gorgeous natural feedback loop between behavior and outcomes and future behavior and outcomes and future behavior. So how do we, or or one goal that people seem to have is, you know, we want to give our animals more agency, especially in terms of training, because that's what we tend to think about. How can we give our animals more agency in the training process? Right. And that's where choice comes in. So these are two, (laughs) yeah. So choice is a mechanism by which we increase animals' opportunity to control their outcomes. Sometimes thinking in the extremes is helpful. If we think about an animal living in an environment, uh, maybe in a small cage in a laboratory, um, without any any kind of um, stimulus diversity, any kind of enrichment or engagement opportunities, then that extremely paltry environment doesn't allow animals to use their natural need for control because there are no choices or outcomes to control. And then if we take the other extreme, which is an environment that is rich with diverse stimuli, then we increase the animal's choices about how to allocate their behavior in a day and In doing so, we have provided for more control. So I think of control or agency as the reason why we behave. It is why behavior was selected naturally over the eons. Those animals that move to control outcomes survived to reproduce, and and their young were themselves behaving, controlling organisms. And choice is the mechanism that we can provide in the environment that we offer that increases the opportunity to control. I think the example of captive animals is a really obvious way for people to understand that idea of giving an animal agency when you're adding in opportunities to express natural behavior, right? Like that was the whole thing with environmental enrichment, wasn't it? You know, that's essentially, you know, what that became. Where it gets a little bit more confusing is, and maybe you can give us an example of how we can do that within a training session or when we're developing like a training protocol. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, you make a a kind of, um, you bring up a dilemma around the word enrichment, which has many different definitions as we as a community Uh, try to settle on one that embraces all the goals that providing an environment with a lot of opportunity for stimulation um, to our animals. Uh, I I have read many times, and I think the association, uh, the Zoological Association, AZA, 
um, defines it as opportunities to express natural behavior um, as well. But I'm always asking, um, what is what is natural behavior? I, I have a, a little Shih Tzu here who picked up her squeaky squirrel. So I'm going to take her squirrel and give her a choice <laughs> to do something that doesn't have a squeaker to increase her control. Hold on. Okay. Okay. That's so funny. Um, so I, I dig into that word, you know, how do we operationalize? How do we describe observably what natural behavior is from other kinds of behavior? And I do have a, a small departure from that notion that it's expressing natural behavior that is solely the goal of creating healthful environments for animals, for captive animals, or even animals in the wild, I think that there's a lot of flexibility that the evolution of behavior um, provides us. And that most importantly, we want animals that have opportunities to behave, to control outcomes, to get high rates of reinforcement, and to avoid or escape aversive stimulation. And I have less attention to whether it's considered natural or not. So if we can just go down that path for a second, because it's such an interesting one, I think when we talk about natural behavior, we're talking about behavior we see in the wild environment. It's the behavior that animals have evolved uh, to fit, to succeed, to reproduce and copy those characteristics out to the next generation. But I don't know I don't think anyone knows whether or not those behaviors in the wild are learned or whether they're uh, reflexive, genetically, you know, expressed, the imperative of the genes fixed, right? So I assume that animals are learning in the wild just as much as they are in captivity. What they're learning and the reinforcers available have significant evolutionary history and certainly genetic tendencies or genes that are available to be expressed in those environments due to the many eons that they've been selected. But I don't assume that animals in the wild are on autopilot. I don't assume that a bird that flies out of the nest for the first time and hits his wing has a gene that's expressed that tells it not to use its wing in that fashion the next time it launches out of the nest. I assume that the consequences of getting hit by the branch and having a wobbly flight plan is what feeds back about how to launch out of the next nest next time. So one thing I would say about um, providing so-called enriched environments is that we're really talking about opportunities to use our behavior effectively, to learn, to solve problems, uh, to gain those reinforcers, and to avoid those aversive stimuli. Um, so that's just a comment about the use of the term natural. That's an interesting discussion as well, because I think that culturally, there is a belief that it's wrong, for example, to teach captive animals 
and then you know i'm thinking of like zoo animals tricks and things that aren't inherently based on like husbandry or have some kind of real like oh we have to teach them that because otherwise it would be really stressful or, so, or something like that and if we go down you know the, the argument that you're making then it would be it's just an as far as the animal's concerned it's just another behavior right the animal doesn't care <laughs> the animal doesn't care what the behavior is as much as the outcome well, I think that's a meme right there, is none of us care so much about the behavior as the outcome behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the deepest understanding of behavior right there is mm. behavior is the mechanism to get to the outcomes. Um, the behavior itself is only really relevant to the extent that it effectively gets the outcomes we're behaving to get. So you're right. That's a different kind of emphasis on the syllable there. Um, so yeah, you understand my meaning. And we were talking about, um, uh, before we got uh, the podcast <laughs> going, about the how much flexibility does a snake bring to learn to eat in smaller bits daily to get the repetitions you may need to teach it to go into a crate hands off to bring it to the veterinarian. And, you know, that idea that um, they have the flexibility to learn behaviors in addition to the ones that they're learning in the wild. Uh, and they learn, you know, what they need to within limits. They learn what they need to based on outcomes. So um, that brings us to a really important perspective too, which is, how do we know what, how much flexibility is okay and how much is too much? So we need to answer that question to be able to care for our animals well. It's a question about measurement and um, observability. So what does a snake look like when it's unhappy eating in small pieces uh, frequently throughout the week rather than one giant feed once every two weeks or once a week. You know, when we assert that that's not natural and we apply that that's not healthful, then I'm always asking, well, what does healthful or unhealthful, happy or unhappy look like? And without having some measures for that, I think, you know, we just run around in circles. I'm not going to feed in small bits because he's unhappy. How do you know he's unhappy? Because I'm feeding in small bits. You know, it yeah. just goes around and around. Um, I think we can answer that question. What does a happy, helpful snake do that can be observed as a measure of the quality of our care, of the welfare we're providing? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said about people maybe assuming that animals are working on working on autopilot. And I think that that maybe comes back to why people believe that the emphasis needs to be on natural behavior, because perhaps they think that it, it, not allowing the animal to do what it would do in the wild is cruel because they're on autopilot, right? Like those are the behaviors that they're desperate to uh, right. Exhibit. They must exhibit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's something else going on on this planet, and we're just starting to take the lid off that now, is that what animals must do is change their behavior 
to fit the environment that they're in. And I keep saying there are limits because I don't mean to sound like I'm not aware that you need to have biology to have behavior. And that biology is um, often a natural constraint. So pigs don't fly. You know, fish must live in water. Um, and so those are certainly limits and inform us about the basic fundamental things animals need to survive. But I would put learning on that list. I would put changing behavior to access reinforcers, to control reinforcers is one of those things they must have as well. I feel like this is a really nuanced argument as well, because I've heard people, for example, justify keeping animals in small enclosures by saying, well, they only roam that far because they need to acquire food. Right. So yeah. there, so uh, how much of that is true and how much of that is actually, there's a, there's a urge to move those kind of distances for elephants or whales or whatever we're talking about. That's right. That's a really important nuance itself. And that brings us back to what's the measure. So to be having these debates in the absence of data to me is not a good use of our time. <laughs> we could be helping animals. So what does it look like when an animal like an elephant is given only a small travel distance? We do see aberrant behaviors that are correlated to restricted um, size of environment. So we see pacing and we see self-injurious behavior. We see a lack of enthusiasm for food or for solving problems. They may choose to eat out of a bucket rather than a puzzle feeder. Those are all measures that uh, things are not optimal. And then we can make our changes, we can build our environments, and we can um, demonstrate those arguments through, through the data. So to jump backwards a little bit then, um, what is an example of using agency in the training protocol that we can maybe right. help to kind of illuminate this a little bit? Yeah, I'm glad you circle back to that because I think it is a really important conversation. Um, and it's, it's thrilling to see uh, training standards and styles changing just in the last five years, in the last 10 years. I mean, very, very recently. When I first started working with non-human learners 20 years ago now, um, the prevailing uh, culture was one of very high or perfect stimulus control. By that, I mean that if you give a cue, the animal needs to respond uh, accurately to the cue and should never show that behavior in a training session uh, unless cued. Okay. Nowadays, I'm seeing and I'm supporting, I'm advocating a different style of training that allows for more control through what I and some other people have been calling uh, establishing a dialogue instead of a monologue. So when I use a command style training and sit means you must sit and nothing else is going to happen until you do sit in the way of, by way of reinforcement. Punishment may result if you don't sit. 
Um, that's what I would call the command style. It's the do it or else version of training. But when you train uh, with an eye on the dialogue, then you're watching the animal's behavior and the most significant aspect of training with a dialogue is you allow the animal's behavior to influence what you do. Whereas with the command style, what the animal does, other than the right answer to the cue, is irrelevant. With establishing a dialogue in mind, the animal's behavior is the data we need to know where to train, where to go next. So rather than perhaps grabbing the scruff of the dog who doesn't sit when I say sit, I'll say, that's interesting. That's interesting data. I wonder why he didn't sit when I said sit. Perhaps he didn't hear because my timing of the cue was wrong uh, or because he's deaf. Perhaps he has a physiological problem. Um, perhaps the reinforcers that are predicted by the cue sit are too weak or poorly timed. Uh, perhaps the clicker that I'm using is really meaningless because it wasn't backed up with strong reinforcement every time I used it. So I see the animal's data uh, behavior as influential data, not about what's wrong with the animal, but what's wrong with my training. And then I revise, I become a better trainer. So dialogue training allows the animal to behave in influential ways. Um, and I think the ultimate example would be, um, for example, I have a video of a um, silverback gorilla who has uh, been trained to respond to a visual and a vocal cue of the toothbrush by opening and holding open his mouth while they brush teeth. What a fantastic husbandry behavior, you know, reducing the need to anesthetize this big animal for root canals and tooth pulling. So it's really critical to their uh, physical health and well-being. And what you see when you watch the video is after one or two reps, and they have a history, this trainer and the silverback working together with this behavior, after one or two reps, you see the gorilla open his mouth before she raises the toothbrush. And so in the old days, which was not very long ago, someone might argue, and still someone might argue, that's not good enough stimulus control. That gorilla should not open its mouth until I give the command. But nowadays, I look at that and I think, that's it. That's dialogue training. By that, I mean I say something, and hopefully it influences you, and you say something back that hopefully influences me. So when he opens his mouth, she just accepts the, we could call it a ready signal or an invitation or the dialogue. She brushes away. She doesn't penalize him in any way for not having 100% stimulus control. Yeah, I think that anyone that has had any experience with aversive training is certainly, you know, glad to be rid of the kind of do it or else mentality. I think where sometimes people get worried is that is that we start to lose some reliability 
do you feel like that's an issue? Or I could think be an that, issue? yeah, to get reliability, we don't need to reduce choice. We need to become better trainers. So when I don't see the reliability of the verbal cue sit or my hand cue um, for sit, uh, resulting in the dog's choice to sit, then I have to look at my training. I'm not going to put the lack of reliability down the throat of the animal. They are biologically prepared. It is their imperative, biological imperative, to respond to cues that predict outcomes of value. So when a dog isn't sitting, given a history of reinforcing sit and then putting it on cue, I can only imagine something's wrong in the environment that I need to problem solve, including what I do. So one way we give choice to animals within training is by allowing their behavior to influence what we do and to allow their behavior to be the constant data flow, precious data flow, that indicates there's a problem in our training skill, the delivery of our training fundamentals that's producing this outcome. Or why wouldn't a dog sit when asked to sit, right? Why wouldn't a dog sit if doing so quickly produced very strong valued reinforcers? Whether that's the door opens or we go outside for a run in the field or a food treat or a frisbee toss. When a dog doesn't sit when asked, that's a very peculiar thing. It suggests something's not right about the environment, including the, tr the trainer's behavior. So one way that we give dogs more choice is by listening to their behavior and then um, understanding that when we get behavior we didn't expect, there's something we need to problem solve about what we're doing or the environment in which we're training. Maybe there's too many distractions and we haven't trained well for distractions yet. You know that expression, the rat is never wrong? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that is that is the ultimate perspective for building excellent teachers and excellent trainers are the ones who look back at what they've done and what they've arranged to account for unexpected learner behavior. Well, I, then, I'm glad to. Uh, oh, I'm I was glad just to say there are times, sorry, there are times when animals can't have a choice. And I think that's what you're asking about. Is that right? Well, I think that there's confusion around this subject of choice because as I think sometimes we sacrifice basic tenants of dog training in order to give the animal more choice. And it's, it seems like there's some conflict between those two things. So for example, like you mentioned distractions there, and sometimes you see people do things like they will m ensure that there are more distractions in the animal's environment sure. and then say, well, we're giving the animal more choice to disengage from us, to go and interact with other reinforcers. And then that contradicts what, we know about dog training when we talk about, well, we need to set the dog up for success and setting the animal up for success would not be doing it when there's loads of, loads of distractions around, right? So like sometimes right. I feel like these two things are, are in, kind of in combat. Yeah, are incompatible in some way. I think we just need to think them through further down the path. I think where 
your examples led us was the middle of the path. And we have to keep going. If we want dogs to respond to cues and distractions, then that becomes the training goal. And the question is, how do you train dogs to respond to cues in distractions? And so you would not throw them in the deep end of the pool, but you would fade in distractions as part of your training plan. On the other hand, if you just wanted to test the boundaries of the dog's response to cues, then you might put them in the deep end and see what happens as a way of informing you where your training needs to go next. So if I wanted to ask, what's more valuable to the dog? Interaction with me and the many reinforcers that produces or running off after the rabbit, I might test that. And if I find that running off after the rabbit is a stronger reinforcer than staying around me, then that's important data that influences what I do next. Uh, How can I give the dog a rabbit time without harming the rabbit, of course, Um, chasing time, um, and still teach the dog that when I give a cue, the most beneficial thing you can do is respond to the cue. That's, for me, a training challenge about how to balance the dog who's very reinforced by running off um, versus the dog that can keep that rabbit in the peripheral and keep eye contact with me. And so I see those as training goals. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I feel like we're kind of on the same page on this. So this is, this is going well, for me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we agree. We're either both right or we're both wrong, but we're not alone. <laughs> I, I want to I cover the husbandry stuff because I feel like this is where choice gets spoken about most with the husbandry stuff. And you know, I've spoken about it quite a lot on this podcast with other people. So I'm interested to hear your take because the... There is a kind of traditional way to do husbandry training. And when I say that, I mean teaching an animal to uh, tolerate handling of some sort, you know, injections or, or, or whatever that might be. And the traditional way of doing that was kind of uh, just a real kind of counter conditioning approach. You know, for example, you show in your example with the gorilla, it would be, you know, you show the animal the toothbrush, your reward, you do that repeatedly, and then you maybe you move the toothbrush towards the animal and so forth and you just keep increasing criteria and then more recently we've added in this element of the animal being being able to do a behavior to stop the protocol essentially so for example in shirag's bucket game if the animal looks away from the bucket then you stop what you're doing right and and so i'm curious about whether one is superior to the other because in Shirag's example, you, the animal seems to have more choice, essentially, in, in what's going on. But they're both counter-conditioning protocols and both people have seemed, have had success doing it both ways. So I'm curious if you have a preference or, or what your thoughts are on that. Generally speaking, my preference is always to give animals a voice. So if they are asking with their behavior for me to stop um, what I'm doing, that's the precious data I need to understand better how to improve my training or my antecedent arrangement, or an animal won't choose to stop. I mean, that's the goal, is to train uh, with such great 
technique that the animal doesn't choose to stop. So that's just one quick answer. But you you said you had hoped for some mind-blowing moments, and maybe this will be <laughs> one. Um, when, just as a sidebar, and then we'll come back to your urgent okay. question, <laughs> is that when you describe that as counter-conditioning, the minute you have a contingency, the animal must sit relaxed or sit still, and then I reward, that is no longer counter-conditioning. That's operant conditioning because you have a contingency between a behavior and an outcome, a so-called reward or reinforcer. So with counter-conditioning, we would just, without any requirement, have the toothbrush in the environment at a distance that the animal remained calm. And we'd have to describe what calm looks like for a silverback gorilla. It's pretty easy to describe <laughs> with a silverback. May not be so easy with one of your snakes, um, but we're getting there. And then we would just feed, 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 feed. So regardless of what the animal's doing, I make this point with you um, because when you talk about there seems to be a lot of confusion out there. I think that this is one of the reasons why there is confusion. When we talk about choice and we embed it in a classical conditioning paradigm, it is confusing because it's a mix of um, classical and operant, and it's hard to see our way out of what is the strategy we're using. So the classical strategy would just be, uh, I show toothbrush, I deliver food, the tooth, tooth, toothbrush, like Pavlov's metronome, comes to predict food is coming. The food itself is um, you know, a stimulus that uh, elicits relaxed food-consuming behaviors, and so the toothbrush um, comes to elicit relaxed muscles, soft eyes, the reflex behaviors, not the voluntary behaviors. Um, so I wanted to toss that in as food for thought. In what way does the different way we understand those procedures uh, produce some of the confusion around the discussion of choice? Um, so you're right in that a classical conditioning procedure is one where we're not talking about choice in the usual voluntary uh, behavior sense of the word because we're conditioning reflexive responses to new stimuli, like a toothbrush. Now, a toothbrush elicits automatic, relaxed, you know, regular heart rate, normal blood pressure, no piloerection. We're talking about reflexes. But the minute we start talking about having a criterion for that food showing up, we're in the operant scene, which is where I would rather be anyway. This brings us back to your point. I'd rather be in the operant area because that's where animals are making choices. It's a more empowered, empowering place to work um, versus conditioning goosebumps and eye blinks. I'm going to condition, so to speak, train a, an animal to come up by choice, sit down by choice, open its mouth, and hold it open while I brush. Um, so I think your premise is an important one that when we're talking about conditioning new stimuli, elicitors for reflex behaviors, that's not a choice paradigm. 
that happens in this passive automatic way, like you automatically blink when there's dust in your eye. But when we're talking about an animal opening its mouth and holding it open, when I show a toothbrush, that's an opportunity for choice. If the animal chooses not to open their mouth, again, I need to ask, why would that be? Why would an animal choose not to open its mouth when in the past it has and it has controlled my reinforcers? What's going on? Is the animal unwell? Does it have a toothache? Are my reinforcers not strong enough? Is there, are they not high rate enough? Am I not delivering them contiguously touching the behavior close enough? If what you're asking, though, is does every interaction have to be choice, then I say no. This is planet Earth. And on Earth, we are built to uh, problem solve our way through aversive events. For me, it's really about the ratio of empowered choice opportunities in a day to no choice. So when I talk about the ratio, that's what I'm keeping my eye on is I want animals to have a day filled of mostly choice. Um, but, you know, when I need um, uh, a dog that's bleeding and it's upset and so it keeps moving away from me, um, I may throw a blanket and restrain it with a blanket to see where the blood is coming from. Now, that would be a, a no-choice event, and what I'm counting on is that a lifestyle of choice has built up this trust account or this relationship bank so that I can withdraw choice from it um, in this instance and not bankrupt the animal's relationship with me or its behavioral health, its empowerment. Um, so I'm not one of these people who say all positive reinforcement only. I don't see how that fits in this world. Um, and I also don't say, for example, zero fear, zero aversion. You know, I think that those experiences, as long as the ratio is very high, so that those aversive experiences happen only rarely, are not a problem for most animals on the planet. We're born with a certain amount of resilience to bounce back. So all positive reinforcement, all choice, all the time, I would replace that with a lot of choice most of the time. Okay, you're giving me a hell of a lot of to go off. <laughs> so in this kind of, to, to go back a little bit to the classical versus operant, um, I completely understand what you're saying. I think that this gets confusing though, because, you know, there's that expression that Pavlov is always on your shoulder, right? You know, if you're doing operant training, classical conditioning comes along with it. Am, am I right to think that? Yes. I'm not going crazy? And, no, you're not going crazy <laughs> at all. These are, these are difficult subjects, um, and, and they're not easy to navigate. I also have to stop and think about it. Um, this morning, one of my students submitted homework about vomiting, and I had to stop and think, is the vomiting reflexive, or can you control it operantly, or is the behavior of putting your finger down your throat really the operant behavior in focus that increases or decreases and not the vomiting? I mean, so you, you are in my 
frame now. This is actually what I do pretty much waking and sleeping is think through the complexities of these things. So this was not like a simple comment. Um, Pavlov is always on your shoulder, but it depends on your understanding of what behavior Pavlov studied. He studied the autonomic system, the system where antecedent triggers cause reflexive behaviors. So when we say Pavlov is always on your shoulder, what are we dragging along with us on the back of our jalopy with Skinner driving? What are those tin cans of Pavlov's that are hanging on the bumper? They are not things like choosing to stand, choosing to keep your mouth open. They are things like calm versus rapid heartbeat, blood pressure, eye blinks, piloerection. But what about positive, positive emotional response? Yeah, you're, you're very knowledgeable. (laughs) (laughs) That's going on my website (laughs) as a quote. Very knowledgeable. (laughs) That is is the absolutely knowledgeable person's place to take it. Is then where are emotions in all of this? Are emotions reflexive, like eye blinks, or are they operant? And so. Here again, and I hope maybe this is the biggest um, gift I can give you, is to ask, what do you mean by emotions? What does it look like? How do we operationalize emotions? Because when we talk about emotions casually, we're typically thinking of reflexive behavior. Heartbeat, blood pressure, right? Clenched jaw, dry mouth. But when we stop and really consider emotions, it is a combination of both. You know, a bird may startle when it hears a loud, unexpected sound and take flight. But where it flies and where it lands is based on consequences from its history. It will fly to me and not to a stranger. That flight pattern and landing tactic is operant behavior. Yet it's part of that emotional fear response. So I, I think we need to challenge ourselves to ask people, well, what do you mean when you say emotional response? Because it isn't usually just the autonomic, reflexive part of our existence. There's a lot of um, learning history involved in what animals do when they're um, experiencing what we would call a positive emotion versus a fearful emotion. Well, so I give think you, conversation needs to be deeper than it has been generally. Well, to give you an example of one way that people tend to work with reactivity in dogs is, you know, when the dog sees the, the trigger, the thing that evokes them to ordinarily react, um, maybe they would wait for the dog to look or turn away from the trigger and then mark and reward that, right? So that is operant in that there is criteria. But if we go through that process over a, a series of months or whatever, the dog eventually, as we start to reduce distance, will start to change how they, I know that this gets a little bit gray, but change how they feel about other dogs, right? right. So counter conditioning seems to have come along for the ride, even though you were focusing on what the dog was doing operantly. Absolutely. So we change operant behavior. And in doing so, 
the more automatic or emotional components that are automatic and not operant follow suit. The animal learns from experience and the body changes its automatic response. And you've just described, you know, sort of where I'm at is you don't have to start with the classical conditioning necessarily. You can do, but Pavlov will follow where empowered behavior takes it. It's also true that operant behavior will follow Pavlov. But I think that some people have a hard and fast rule about what should come first. And if I were to vote on that, I would vote, if you have to choose, I would vote, train and operant behavior, give the animal the power to affect its outcomes and let the emotions follow it. Okay. Yeah. Susan is team operant. Absolutely. <laughs> Put me down for team operant and let me you know, give me the opportunity to explain why and you'll be on team operant too. You know, we have to go back to that really deep, complex point you made, which is really what is emotion? And from a behavior analysis perspective, emotions can be considered behavior too. I think what's useful about that, considering emotions as either behavior or a part of behavior, as Joe Lang says, one of our most brilliant contributors recently about the discussion of emotion, is that when you think about emotions as behavior or part of behavior, it leads you to understand that they are the result of environmental events, just like any other behavior. And that gets lost when people talk about emotions. For example, we talk about emotions as causing behavior. The animal was afraid, and so it ran. Or you said the animal's reactive, and so it lunges and barks. But it's not the reactivity that is causing the lunging and barking. It's the proximity of the dog across the street. This is a huge right turn, in my opinion, in helping animals. When we understand that the cause of behavior is not the emotions or any other thing inside the animal, that both the physiological responses that comprise our emotions, rapid heartbeat, high blood pressure, um, and the operant behaviors, lunging and persistent barking, are all a result of how close that dog is. And that we can change both the physiology and the operant response by changing the conditions in which that animal is walking on a lead. It's kind of the difference between almost having a growth mindset, isn't it? You know, it, it, believing that it can be changed, right? Because I think that uh, sometimes when people say the dog is reactive, then it's almost like a death sentence, right? The dog is reactive and that's a write-off. Exactly. Right? A growth mindset. And I think in this, in this context, a growth mindset and a science-based mindset are overlapping entirely because if I were to say, well, what's causing the reactivity, you know, then what does the reactivity look like? In both cases, we're talking about observable behavior in specific conditions. It's not inside the animal, although their heartbeat 
is raised, their blood pressure is raised, their hackles are up, all of those are also a function of the, the environment that they're doing those behaviors in, even though those are reflexive or so-called but Pavlovian or respondent behaviors, not operative. I also wanted to talk about errorless learning because that's another thing that has become hugely, you know, like a big talking point uh, in recent years. And I was wondering, firstly, I think there's, a, again, there's this a misunderstanding about how are we defining this? Because some people, well, people seem to define it differently. Some people define it as making sure there are absolutely no errors in, in training. Other people define it as not letting the learner know they've made an error. So I'm, I'm curious about how you would define errorless learning. That's interesting. Um, you know, I think this speaks to our need to protect our, our conventional science definitions, right? So I remember in a class I was teaching at the university when I asked for the definition of reinforcement and one of the students said, well, to me, and I banged the table and said, stop right there. I can't bear it. I can't bear that you're going to define reinforcement as though it's a personal opinion. I'm not asking what it is to you. That may be interesting another time. What I'm asking for is the conventional scientific definition. And there's, it's true that there are many terms that have more than one definition and, they're, and they don't always line up perfectly, but they're not nearly as disparate, as different as they are when we allow people, when we, um, we, <laughs> we don't reinforce them for appealing to conventional science definitions. So I have to admit I was a bit punishing to that student, and I hope I've grown <laughs> to not do it quite that way. But that's an example of me just saying, stop that. We're not talking about your personal opinion. And I feel that way about errorless learning. Like, I, I, if we don't protect a scientific vernacular, then it's a Tower of Babel out there. So I would ask the person who defines errorless learning as zero errors or as um, the animal not knowing they made an error, I would ask, where, where did you learn that definition? Because that's not my understanding of the scientific conventional definition for errorless I, learning. I thought that, um, was it Terrace? Was it, I thought that he described errorless learning as not allowing, or not, not letting the animal know they've made an error. I, I would have to that? ask you, yeah, I, I don't know of that. So that either means it's wrong or you no, have well, to definitely means I'm wrong. Society. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, the things that I'm learning every day, um, I was reviewing a book uh, a few days ago, a book, and the reading the book in my review caused me to go to the internet to find out if there was wild camels as opposed to feral or... Um, captive camels. It caused me to understand that Pearson Cheney call it a respondent behavior when it's elicited by a learned trigger, like the metronome eliciting the salivation, but they call it, um, and they also called it a forced behavior, but they call it a reflexive behavior if it's elicited by the natural stimulus, the meat and mouth. 
So this just happened three days ago. So either it's wrong or I have something to learn, which actually is always very exciting for me. So I need your your um, citation. I have read Terrace's primary reports, his articles on it, and I, I don't recall, but I was after something else. I was after what it meant procedurally, so I might have missed that nuance. I think what is most common, and we could pull out our secondary sources, our textbooks, would be the most useful approach. So we would pull out Paul Chance, Learning and Behavior, and Mazur, and Pearson Cheney, and some of our other favorite books, Reynolds and so forth. And we would look up what is the conventional definition. Um, we could also go to the glossary from, um, I think it's Florida State. If you look up ABA glossary, you'll get there and see what they say. What do you but, understand by that term? Yeah, my understanding of the definition, which I will now check when we're done, is that <laughs> it's about... Um, really, it's it's procedurally what's important is antecedent arrangement. That we're going to arrange the antecedent environment to make the right behavior the most probable behavior. Okay. So it's different than trial and error in important ways. In trial and error, we're tossing the animal into the deep end and seeing whether they swim or they don't. With errorless learning which I'm a huge advocate for, we take the responsibility to arrange the environment so the right answer is the most probable, so that reinforcement is flowing, and then we fade in the difficulty we may need at the end of the game. So we fade in the depth of the swimming pool over the different training sessions. We don't just start there. Isn't this another way of saying set the dog up for success? Yes, it is. And we want to make sure people understand what we mean by that. It doesn't mean that a sub-criterion response, a weak, poor response should be reinforced, although that's another topic, is can we teach animals by using weak reinforcers for the wrong behavior and strong reinforcers for the right behavior? You know, that will work as well. Okay. Differential outcome effect. But generally speaking, you know, what do people mean by set them up for success? I imagine if we don't come to a conventional definition, that too is going to mean a million different things, which makes the term useless. You know, these are one of these, this is one of those things that was, you know, when clicker training really got popular, that was something that was like, it seemed like that was something that kind of came along with clicker training. You set the dog up for success. And then I'm sure that errorless learning in the science goes back further than that. But in terms of dog training talk, errorless learning is something that people are only recently starting to talk about. Um, and I just I wanted to clarify that those are essentially, I mean, I know that people define them differently, but essentially those are kind of one and the same or two different ways of looking at the same thing, you know, yes. minimizing errors or maximizing success. I agree. And then how do we do that? We minimize errors through antecedent arrangement of the training environment. We take a look at the environment we, with really sensitive eyes, a lot of education and experience, 
we look at the training environment and we identify obstacles to the right answer and we remove them initially. And then when the time is right, when there's fluency or mastery at the um, level where the environment is clearer of obstacles, then we start fading in obstacles. And I think that one of the things people misunderstand is that they think mistakenly, we mean never make it hard. Instead, what we mean is making it hard is part of the lesson plan. We do it at the right time in the right size steps. We don't just throw them in. Well, I think that one of the criticisms that is made of errorless learning, both by people that use aversives more frequently, but I also think that I'm not as kind of fluent in the science as you, but I think that this was also made like academically as well, is that essentially when you do try to minimize errors, you often end up with learners that lack resilience to making an error, right? So if they do make an error, then extinction happens quicker or they break down and get frustrated more easily. How do you kind of have your cake and eat it with this? You know, like we we want to maximize success in our animals, but we also want animals that are resilient to stress. You've got it. Like you're right there. You ask, what does resilience look like? And then you train for it. So if I were to ask 100 people, what do you mean by resilience? I don't think I'd get many fluent, quick, low latency responses. People are throwing around these terms like it's something, an organ that lives inside the animal, right? But instead, if we take it out of the animal and put it in the animal's behavior in conditions, then we can come up with that training plan. And that's exactly what I mean by if we need to make it difficult, Difficult is a synonym for lower rates of reinforcement, right? It's hard because I'm not controlling my outcomes. We call that situation a difficult situation. I can fade in difficulty. I can fade in lower rates of reinforcement and build what we call persistence. So the issue is not do we need animals that are resilient, that bounce back when they make an error or when something aversive happens. Of course, we do want animals that come back to behave again another day, right? We don't want them in a puddle on the floor. But how do you get that? Well, some of that is our biological um, genetic tendency. If we didn't have a certain amount of bounce back in the face of aversive stimulation, we probably wouldn't survive to our first birthday. But we can also build it through the schedule of reinforcement we provide. But why would we start with a lean schedule of reinforcement when we could teach the behavior faster and get a lot more enthusiasm, that is low latency, high energy responding, by teaching a behavior with a high rate of reinforcement and then slowly fade in the schedule that builds that kind of persistence, an intermittent schedule. We would thin our rate of reinforcement to produce the persistence, the industriousness, the creativity we need. So it's not that we don't want it. It's about how do we get it? Do we get it by making life hard? Or can we get it 
by starting out with clear answers, that is control over reinforcers. And then when we need it, we adjust our training to build those characteristics of behavior. Um, So I just want to say to kind of wrap that story up is I think that it's our cultural fog that has us thinking that resilient, persistent, industrious animals describe something that is 100% of the time. I don't agree. I think that there are some behaviors or chains of behavior where we need those characteristics, and then I adjust my rate of reinforcement and my training plan accordingly. For example, if I want a bird to fly to my hand, my hand always needs to be there. So my feeling is I'm going to reinforce that bird every time it comes to my hand whether it's with food or an opportunity to go on to an enriched perch area, I'm going to make sure that that super high rate of reinforcement because that's going to produce a super high rate of recall. But if I want an animal, for example, if I want a bird to be a searching bird, to fly bigger and bigger areas and search for something, like Skinner's pigeon in a pelican when the birds were searching for um, uh, people who were victims of um, shipwrecks and those kinds of things in the Second World War. Then I would train it first with that high rate of reinforcement, and then I would thin it to an intermittent schedule to build resilience, persistence, industriousness. The search and rescue dogs are an example of behavior we need to be persistent and strong in the face of leaner reinforcement. But coming when I call you to come isn't one of those behaviors. So I think it's a deeper treatment of that discussion when you ask, well, what behaviors are better served by errorless learning, high rates of reinforcement, so forth and so on? And what behaviors are better served with errorless learning, but once learned then we need to take it to another place. Yeah, I think that uh, you kind of mentioned this already, but that certainly addresses one way of using the word resilience. Another way that people use the word resilience is in terms of resilience to stress. So for example, people that use aversives frequently find that those dogs are more able to experience an aversive and then continue training. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of, uh, and they would say, you know, with this, with a more errorless approach, a dog that experiences that aversive experiences it at a much higher intensity, you know, uh, in a sense, I guess there's almost a desensitization kind of going on. um, And that can be a negative thing, right? You know, if something, if a balloon pops or something, and that has a much more catastrophic effect on the dog than it would for a dog that is more used to experiencing aversives in their lives. Yeah, that's a a great clarification. I don't think that that speaks against errorless learning. I think that it speaks against going far enough down the learning path for that animal to learn about balloons and other unexpected noises. So we train to that. Right. Rather than really, I think 
maybe the most evocative metaphor is, do we just drop them in the deep end where they're experiencing with no preparation uh, all these aversive experiences until eventually that becomes the norm? Or do we train to it by fading in those unexpected um, stimuli so that uh, uh, unexpected becomes the norm? You know, I can share with you um, an interesting example of this is the way that Ken Ramirez describes training for aversive procedures like um, um, injection poke, you know, rather than um, increasing the pressure against the skin and practicing um, breaking the skin with pretend injections. He teaches the animals that things are different all the time. So as he's training the injection behavior, he might have a drum playing. He might have a sharp finger poking. He might have a piece of cloth over the animal. So in the process of training, there's so much variability in these injection training sessions that the once a year time that the animal actually gets pricked, it's just more variability. I think that this is really innovative thinking. Yeah, that's really cool because if we're defining resilience to stress like that and we're taking that kind of path, then that is kind of training dogs to have a kind of generalized resistance to stress, which I think that a lot of people really value, you know, especially in a, a lot of the kind of ring sports where they, you know, they have the kind of, they have the big bite suit on and they actually at the competitions, they do all kinds of crazy stuff. And part of the challenge is that the person that has trained their dog doesn't know what is coming. Right. Right. And, and, and something like what you just described with, Ken's training right. is exactly the same thing, essentially. That's right. And you don't, and you don't have to use choke chains to get it. So, exactly, <laughs> you don't have to um, harm the animal. I mean, we have to operationalize. What does stress look like when you say stress? What do you mean? If I saw a dog that, when there were unexpected loud noises, shaking and cowering under the bed, I would not advise that to teach them to be more resistant to that aversive stimulation, we keep doing it. I would think about, as you said, a desensitization and a shaping plan where I'm according to um, tolerable increments, a graduated sequence of introduction of unexpected aversive stimuli. And I mean, it's the way that I raised my daughters as well. People often <laughs> know um, daughter stories, you know, uh, but, you know, I wouldn't think of teaching a child to be uh, more resistant to life's stressors, unexpected aversive stimulation by just throwing them in the deep end all the time. Um, but yeah, it doesn't that's part require of, you know, that I, think... I keep it out either. It's about yeah. graduated introduction. You know, I've been thinking about that recently because I see these videos that go viral, like these parenting videos, and 
I've seen the same video done different times now where you get like a martial arts teacher and they put the kid through some like really stressful experience. And then once they've gone through the stressful experience and they're crying and everything, they give them a hug and they kind of talk to them and say, you know, that's the challenges of life and all this kind of stuff. And people like share it and they love it. And I'm always looking at it and kind of thinking that doesn't like, that doesn't seem like a good, (laughs) like you're just putting the, kid for unnecessary stress and then kind of making it like tying it in with this metaphor like well life is stressful we're preparing you for the for the stress that you're going to experience in life and it's like uh, i'm not i don't know i'm not cool with that and then we can when the child screams i hate you and runs out of the house and doesn't come home we can explain to parents it's because you paired yourself with a strong aversive stimulus and so now you are yourself the strong aversive stimulus have yeah. um, I think the question that I've come to that's meaningful, that helps me um, navigate these dilemmas is to ask, is it necessary? Is there a less intrusive way? If there's a less intrusive way to get to the same goal of resistance to extinction, um, which is partly what we're describing when we describe difficult situations, or resistance to punishment, um, you know, naturally occurring punishers in life, uh, then the question is, is it necessary to throw them in that deep end? Or can you produce a child who is persistent, industrious, creative, even in the face of aversive stimulation? They know how to remove it from their path and keep going. And the answer clearly is that it's not necessary. It's just Mm. where our cultural fog led us. It is familiar and it's convenient, but it's not necessary. And our science and our practice, you know, demonstrates that for people who want to to see what it looks like to do it a different way. There's certainly ample counterpoint videos out there. I ask you to send me that video if you see it again. Um, okay. I'm doing a presentation on parenting um, at the Clicker Expo this year, and so- I'm sure I'll see some rendition of it again. I see, okay. you know, a slightly different version of it each time, and you know, obviously, it's well intentioned. Obviously, people are trying to, you know, create children that are, you know, strong and resilient to stress and able to cope with life's challenges. But I think that it's really kind of not the best way to go. But I'm really glad that you clarified that as well, because I think that that is a question that, you know, people are talking about a bit more recently as well of, you know, is this a negative or positive training or the way that we've gone in training that we now have these animals that we've trained positively that aren't able to cope with the stress of everyday life. And people might say, well, we're seeing more reactive dogs and they try to tie it into all of these kind of anecdotal things. Um, Right. And it may be that the way people are interacting with their dogs are producing more, um, you know, less um, persistent or uh, resistant to aversive stimulation um, styles of behaving in there. I mean, these are questions we can ask, but we can also point to many, many instances of where uh, keeping a ratio of empowered positive outcomes to only occasional unempowered, out of control, aversive outcomes produces, you know, great, strong, productive behaviors. I don't know 
when people have a dog that behaves that way, I do ask, you know, what is this dog's history? It's an interesting question. Can we create that by misunderstanding how to train and teach well? I mean, I'm sure we can, but it's not what they may be calling positive or errorless learning may not be what you and I are calling or science is referring to by those terms. Well, thanks for joining me and clarifying so much of this stuff. You know, it's really, really good to have had this discussion because I think that there is so much confusion about these topics. So I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to talk about it and probably cause a whole lot more more questions but that's how that's these things the tend to go that's right that's a good discussion when it leads to more questions thank you well where can people find out more about the work that you're doing susan well uh, my website behaviorworks.org my facebook page behaviorworks has uh some really great video and some uh explanations about how behavior works so i think that would be a fun and um interesting place to send people. And then I have my online course that I'm teaching twice a year now. It's an eight-week course, August and January. And um, and then I'm just all, traveling all over the world. So I, I hope to see you on the path one of these days. All right. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much again, Susan. My pleasure. Thank you. Errorless learning and agency, two topics that confuse the hell out of people. I hope that blew a lot of your minds. I'm sure it did. Every time Susan speaks, minds explode. Lots of just crazy, awesome information. Um, yeah, so it's so fun talking to Susan and, and kind of listening to her speak on these kind of topics. And also, I want to give a shout out, talking of awesome people, to Michael Shikashio. He's been on the show before. He's, in my opinion the aggression expert to go to you know he's he's i haven't seen anyone speak on aggression better than michael i really love his content and he's just launched his own aggression course which is essentially open enrollment so you can join at any time and you can complete the modules at your own uh, rate at your own schedule and then you get the chance to access live group mentor sessions that happen year round it's just crazy. Um, I'm, I'm sure that it is going to be freaking awesome because, like I said, I really rate Michael so highly when it comes to the aggression stuff. So I want you guys to check that out. You can find that by going to aggressivedog.thinkific.com. So you, you spell that T. So aggressivedog.thinkific.com. I'll put a little link in the description as well so you guys can just click through to it. And also, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode, which will be at nickbenger.com slash Susan hyphen Friedman. See ya. See ya.